0: Let's begin with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this evening for this little book of Micah. A, a short book, but a book that lays out your entire plan of salvation from the promises that you have given to Abraham, through your workings with Israel, through the, coming, the first coming of the Messiah, and his ultimate second coming, and beyond that into the, into the Millennial Kingdom. We thank you for giving us this this understanding. We ask that you would help us to appreciate it and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Micah. Much, much shorter than the book of Isaiah that we were looking at last time. We've got too many screens open here. Okay, switcheroo. There we go. So, Micah, I've entitled this Jesus Christ's Witness Against Rebellious Nations. And there are certainly plenty of that in this book Witnesses Against Judah and Israel and the Gentile Nations as well. This is a, a comment that Martin Luther made about the prophets. He said, The prophets have a, a queer way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. So, as you read the Prophets, if you're expecting everything to be laid out neatly for you so that they tell you, well, first this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, that's not the Prophets. No prophet illustrates this better than Micah. It is easy to get lost in the mix of his judgment and salvation speeches. The, the prophets generally you know, jump back and forth between the near fulfillment of their prophecies and the far fulfillment of their prophecies, and then back to the near fulfillment. And when they're talking about the far fulfillment of their prophecies, sometimes they, they might be talking about the first coming of the Messiah, and other times they might be talking about the second coming of the Messiah, and Events surrounding that and on into the millennial kingdom. So you really have to be on your toes when you're studying the prophets, and that is especially true of Micah. The name Micah, a common name in the Old Testament, is a shortened version of the name Micaiah. Hebrew is a Mikayahu, which means who is like Yahweh. And Micah asks that very question. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. The facts of, of Micah. The author of the book of Micah was the prophet and poet of Morasheth. That was the town that he was from. Moresheth was a small village about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. Little is known about Micah other than the meaning of his name, his hometown, and the fact that he prophesied during the reigns of three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Micah wrote his poetic prophecies between 730 and 720 BC, sometime around there. With most of the prophets... We're given the name of the prophet, and we're also given the name of their father. With Micah, we're not given his father's name. That's probably an indication that Micah was not from a prominent family. So with, with Isaiah, we saw that his family, Isaiah in, in particular, and his family, they had a lot of, a lot of uh, influence over the royal court in Jerusalem. But uh, Micah doesn't seem to have had any of that influence over the royal family, the royal court. So he probably was not from a prominent family. Here's a, a map just to show you where Moresheth is. So here's here's Samaria in the the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. In Moresheth, is is over here, about 20 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. It's called Morasheth Gath. It's near the, the city of Gath, which is located okay here. And you've heard of Gath before, because in, in the time of David, uh, Gath was a Philistine city. And that's where Goliath, the giant Goliath is from, Goliath of Gath. He's from Gath. And, and Moresheth is near Gath, so it's called Moresheth Gath. Um, one of the one of the things that struck me when I visited this area was that there are lots of uh, caves, underground caves, carved into the chalk. It, it's very soft to carve, and so there are lots of underground caves carved into the chalk. And the acoustics in there are just incredible. So it, it's it's fun to go in, into the caves and to... To sing, you know, because because the acoustics are so great, especially a group of of tra- tourists, travelers, to go in there and sing a song and praise to God. The landmarks. Micah represented God to the Southern Kingdom of Judah. Micah spoke to the common people of Judah, the farmers and villagers. Once again, Isaiah was speaking to the, to the royal court in Jerusalem and Micah speaking on behalf of the, of the common people, the farmers and villagers. Micah's theme was God is moving. Yes, his judgment was approaching, but afterward the future would be glorious. The itinerary, the outline of the book, uh, scholars really really struggle with this because it's, it's kind of difficult to discern a, a pattern in, in the book. It, it sometimes seems like a, a lot of random ideas just put together. But I, I kind of discerned a, a pattern in the book, so I call the first three chapters the expose, in which God exposes the, the sins of Judah and Israel and, and also the other Gentile nations. Then uh, the second section, chapters 4 and 5, I refer to as the expectation, the expectation of the the coming of the Messiah. And this is that section where we read about Bethlehem, where where the Messiah would be born. And finally, there's the exaltation in in chapters 6 and 7, which gives information about the, the ultimate salvation of the remnant of Israel in the glorious Millennial Kingdom. The Gospel. Micah delivered one of the most well-known Messianic prophecies in redemptive history. A full 700 years before the events of the Gospel took place, a prediction of the little town of Bethlehem becoming the birthplace of the Messiah. Micah not only prophesied about Jesus' first coming, he also prophesied about his return The Deliverer born in Bethlehem would have the heart of a shepherd, nourishing his people. That's Jesus' first coming. And bringing peace to the earth. That's his second coming. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he did just that on the cross. Giving his life for us so that we might have peace with God and receive the forgiveness of our sins. In the prophetic words of Micah, he cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus laid down his life and rose again, and now we wait for him to return and reign in everlasting peace. The history, Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This era was one of Assyrian dominance. The Assyrians conquered Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and destroyed parts of of the southern kingdom of Judah. Micah prophesied around the same time as Isaiah, Hosea, Jonah, and Amos. So the liberal scholars have the same problem with, with Micah that they do with Isaiah. Because Micah is living at this time of Assyrian dominance and then he prophesies about Babylon and the captivity of Judah and then Judah returning from captivity. And all of that is in the future. So, of course, the liberal scholars said, oh, that can't be. You, you, we can't have predictive prophecy. So once again, they, they uh, tried to say that Amos couldn't have known that. The travel tips from the book, things that we can learn, things that we can apply to our lives. The book of Micah reveals that God wants you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah reminds us to put into practice what we know divinely to be true. God has an immediate and an ultimate plan for his people. It's easy to focus on the trials and tragedies of this life and lose sight of what is coming. Micah reminds us that God uses hardships to mature us in times of rejoicing to remind us of his goodness, whetting our appetites for Christ's triumphant return. Corruption works outward from the core of a nation or an individual. Selfishness, lust and greed and laziness are default settings. We don't have to try to do those things, do we? When you read God's word daily, pray constantly, attend church regularly, and live life with other believers, you fill yourself with the things of God so that in times of trial or temptation, the fruit of the Spirit pours out of your life. God has a big eraser. Let him use it. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Another prophet says, as far as the east from the west, he has removed from us our sins. So the point is that God has taken them away. And we see that, of course, in the, the uh, Yom Gippur Day of Atonement service with the two goats. One goat is propitiation, one goat is expiation, the taking away, the removal of our sins. Confess your every sin to the Lord, everything that weighs you down in running this race and let him refresh your soul. Micah's style. Micah's powerful literary style has been overlooked for two reasons. First, the Hebrew is difficult, and the structure is not immediately clear to contemporary readers. You'll see a lot of of different outlines of of the book of Micah, because scholars uh, have to really discern what what the structure is. But the second thing is that Micah has been overshadowed by his better-known contemporary, Isaiah. So people are more familiar, generally, with the writings of Isaiah, even though there's a, there's a great deal of overlap between the two. Uh, we'll see that Micah's description of, of the coming millennial kingdom is almost verbatim the same as Isaiah's. Nonetheless, the prophet Micah was a master with words and images. Perhaps nowhere in the book is this better illustrated than in Micah 1 10 16. Historically, this is a prophetic description of the route taken by Sennacherib, Sennacherib is the Assyrian king, by Sennacherib's army as it marched toward Jerusalem. So the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and then they tried to, to take the the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were almost successful, but God intervened supernaturally and saved Jerusalem and Judah. But in this description, uh, Micah describes uh, specific towns and the cities that the, that the Assyrian army will march through, and they're, they're mentioned in Micah, and Micah utilizes interesting word plays To narrate what will happen as as the Assyrians move through these cities, the word plays relate to the city's names, relate the city's names to their fate. So, for the most part, English translations cannot convey the connection. But Moffat's paraphrase gives the reader an idea of what is going on. So, uh, this is referring to to James Moffat. he produced a translation of the Bible in the early part of the 20th century, in the 1920s. Uh, his translation isn't isn't very well known today because there have been so many good translations that have come out since then. But in this particular passage, he does a really good job of taking the names, the Hebrew names of these towns, and instead of, of giving us the Hebrew names, he gives us the the meanings of the names in English, and then he ties them to the fate of these cities. So he does, he does a remarkable job of doing this, and I'll show you what he does. The, um, as I said, the Moffat translation isn't very well known today, uh, but it was one of the, one of the earliest attempts to, to put the Bible into modern English. So here, here's how he uh, handles this passage. Tell it not in Tellington, wail not in wailing. Dust manor will eat dirt. Dressy town, flee naked. A bitter dose drinks bitterton. Towards Jerusalem, city of peace, the Lord sends war. Harness the war's deeds, O men of Barstead. Zion's beginning of sinning equal to Israel's crimes. To welfare, a last farewell. For trapping, trapped Israel's kings. I, I, I like that because he, it's difficult to, to translate, to, to transfer those uh, Hebrew word plays into English. I, just, I think he does a very good job there. the theological message of Micah. The, the theology of Micah is largely concerned with divine judgment against sin. That's the main emphasis of the book. Yahweh commissioned Micah to bring this message of judgment against his people, Israel and Judah. Well, his people, Israel and Judah both departed from the way of the Lord and angered him by their sin. The sin is religious as well as social. Israel's civil and religious leaders, the prophets and priests, have rejected the ways of God. They have a false security in the Lord. So even though they have turned from God, they think that God is on their side. And surely he wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to them. This assertion may be illustrated by the attitudes of the false prophets against whom Micah frequently speaks. They taught that Israel was secure and thus did not speak the word of God. Micah often quoted his prophetic opponents, as for instance in Micah 3.11. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not, it's not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. The Lord accordingly presses his case against his people. Who have broken covenant with him. He reveals himself as a warrior against his people. The Lord desires that his people love him and act justly. He calls them back to himself. Perhaps one of the most moving passages in the book is 6, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, taken in, in Jewish tradition as a summary of the law. What, so what does God expect from us, is the question that is asked. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil. So, sometimes we humans think that we need quality. And if that doesn't work, maybe we need quantity. Thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of olive oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So the, the pagans, the Gentile nations around Israel were in the habit of, of sacrificing their, their firstborn, their children. So it's supposed to uh, signify their, their total commitment to their pagan gods. But of course, God does not accept human sacrifice. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? This is what God requires. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. While some have tried to read this as as an argument against all priestly religion, it is simply to correct an unhealthy emphasis on external religion among some Israelites. So, the sacrificial system was not wrong, it was instituted by God. He was, he was the one who instructed Israel to do it. But the sacrificial system becomes wrong when we place reliance upon religion without an attitude of love for God. It can't be just going through the motions. While judgment against sin is the dominant note of the book, Hope is not lacking. As early as chapter 2, Yahweh speaks in comforting tones of salvation after judgment. So yes, judgment is coming, but eventually Israel will be delivered and restored. The final picture of God in in the last chapter of, of Micah shows him to be unprecedented in grace and true to his covenant promise to Abraham. The promises to David are not dead, but they will be fulfilled in the future. So God's judgment of Israel does not mean the abandonment of his promises. And of course, those who espouse replacement theology think that it does, but that is not the case. That is not what scripture teaches us. The promises of Micah. Three great promises, each beginning with the exhortation to hear. So God exhorts us through Micah to hear about these promises that he has extended to Israel and ultimately to all mankind. First of all, there's the promise of deliverance. Even though Judah will be subdued and taken into captivity, Israel will eventually be delivered. Secondly, there's a promise to overthrow the enemies in the land. And finally, there's a fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham. Micah tells us that those promises will be fulfilled. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. So God promises that he will deliver Israel and assemble them together. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. He's speaking now to the, to the Gentile nations that have defied God and have tortured and humiliated and Israel. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So even though Israel was promised judgment, Judah was promised judgment, they were also promised that God would fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham and to David. Micah gives us an extensive catalog of Israel's sins. He tells us what they've done wrong specifically. First, there is idolatry. Then there is covetousness. Then there is oppression. The uh, the upper class is really oppressed. The the landed elite oppressed the, the farmers and the villagers. Then there is violence. They not only oppressed the people, they actually committed violence against those who were unable to defend themselves against the wealthy and the elite. Then there was encouraging false prophets. They didn't just tolerate them, the false prophets and their false teachings. They encouraged them. You see the corruption of all levels of society, the corruption of the princes, the the civil rulers, the corruption of the prophets, the corruption of the priests, and then, of course, there was bribery and dishonesty. So Micah catalogs and describes all of those sins that plagued Israel and Judah. In Micah, there are some outstanding passages about Christ, about the coming of the Messiah. His birthplace is named in chapter 5. In chapter 2, there's a description of Christ as the king. And finally, we are given a description of Christ reigning in righteousness over the whole earth in the coming millennial kingdom. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one, for for you come forth for me, one, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So even though Christ was born as as a child, In Bethlehem, he didn't just begin to exist at that time. His existence is from old or ancient days. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So we can understand that Jesus Christ will not only be the shepherd of his people, he will be their king leading them. I've I've highlighted this um, part of the passage, opens the breach and break through and pass the gate. What in the world does that mean? Well, this is a a good example of how it's important to understand the culture of ancient Israel. And it helps us to understand some passages in the New Testament that might not make very much sense until you understand what's going on here. Uh, We read this in in John, the Gospel of John. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. What does that mean, I am the door of the sheep? Hmm, that seems kind of puzzling. And this is even more puzzling in the book of Matthew. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? How can you enter the kingdom of God by violence? Well, this passage in Micah helps us to understand that. You see... At night, the shepherd would bring his sheep into an enclosure, either either a, a natural cave or an enclosure made of a, with a stone fence, and he would put his sheep in in the in within, within the enclosure to protect them overnight from predators, and then the shepherd would sleep in the opening, so that if any predators wanted to attack the sheep, they had to get through him. So he was the door of the sheep. And that's what Jesus meant when he said he's the door of the sheep. But what is this thing about violence? Well, in the morning, the sheep are brought out of the enclosure and they're taken out to pasture with the shepherd leading them. But you see, if you have a whole pan full of sheep, it's very difficult for them all to get through that opening at once. <laughs> they, they all want to get out to, to the pasture. So what the, what the shepherd would do is he would make a breach. He would knock down a portion of the stone wall so that all of the sheep could get out. And of course they're just bursting with enthusiasm to get out to, to the pasture. So that is, that is what is being referred to in this whole thing in, in Micah and also in, in Matthew where it talks about with violence. I mean, they're just, in, they're just bursting with enthusiasm to get out into the pasture. And that's the way it is with, with God's people wanting to, to get into his kingdom. So now we read about a passage of Christ's second coming and on into the millennial kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And this is parallel to, almost exactly like the passage in Isaiah chapter 2, which describes the millennial kingdom. It uses the, many of the same terminology. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide Disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And, and all of this is very similar to what the prophet Isaiah says. one thing that Isaiah doesn't have is this thing about the every man sitting under his vine or under his fig tree i really i really appreciate that particular line because many people think that what we need to have utopia on earth is we need socialism we need everybody owning everything in common but this verse very clearly says Every, that every man will sit under his own vine and his own thing. So that there's private property in the, in the millennial kingdom. <laughs> not socialism, not communism. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. So all the, all the pagan Gentile nations tend to walk in, in the worship of their God, but we will walk In the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from this time forth, and forevermore. Quotations from Micah. There are at least three important quotations that we need to look at. First, uh, the, the quotation by the elders of Judah in the book of Jeremiah. So Micah prophesied long before Jeremiah. He prophesied at the time when Assyria was dominant. Jeremiah, on the other hand, prophesied just before Judah went into captivity. So there's a period of more than 100 years between them. So, but the, prophets, uh, the elders of Judah were quoting from Micah at the time of Jeremiah. And then the second quote is by the chief priests and scribes, when the Magi sought the Messiah in Jerusalem. So in the, in the New Testament, in Matthew, the, the Magi, the wise men, come to Jerusalem looking for this newborn king. And Herod refers to the chief priests and scribes to find out where this, this newborn king might be born. And then the third quotation of Micah is by Jesus when he's sending out the 12. So we'll take a look at those three. This is the quotation of of Micah in the book of Jeremiah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, so that's long before the time of Jeremiah, king of Judah, and and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So people thought that Jeremiah was, was really a traitor because he was predicting all of these horrible things would come upon Judah. And it was pointed out that Micah had prophesied that this would happen long before this, long before the time of Jeremiah. The quotation that in Matthew, um, in Bethlehem of Judea, they, the, the chief priests and the scribes, told him, Herod, Because this is what was written by the prophet. And of course we know that the prophet in question is Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Because out of you will come a leader who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. So they were referring to this prophecy of Micah so long before of where the Messiah would be born. and this is what what Jesus said, referring to this passage in Micah, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. So many times we, we find that the words of Jesus didn't originate in the first century. Many times he's quoting from Passages in the Old Testament. For example, when when he was tempted in the wilderness, each time that that Satan tempted him, he referred, he quoted a passage from the Old Testament. And even at the time of his crucifixion, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Well, that's that's a quotation too. Those, Those are not original words that that Jesus just invented in the first century. The word remnant is often used by the prophets. Many of the prophets use use that word. They speak of the remnant. What does it mean? Remnant refers to the small part of the nation of Israel that God always preserves for himself. No matter how debauched and far away from God Israel went, there was always a remnant. There were always those who remained faithful to God. And those are some of the Places in in Micah where a remnant is referred to. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep, sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. From this time forth and forevermore. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, those are the three parallel passages. Jesus uses that same metaphor of a woman in labor giving birth when he's speaking of Israel and the remnant of Israel who will go through the tribulation. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. So Israel will yet be restored to this place of prominence among the nations. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So those, those three part, segments of, of the book of, of Micah that I talked about earlier, the, the uh, expose, the expectation, and the exaltation. So the, in the first part, um, in the first part, portion of the book, there's a message to the people concerning Israel's sin. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. And I showed you before this catalog of of Israel's sins, idolatry, covetousness, oppression, violence, encouraging false prophets, corruption of princes, corruption of prophets, corruption of priests, bribery, and dishonesty. So in that first section, Micah exposes Israel's sins. Sins. In that second portion, the expectation, there is a message to the rulers concerning the coming Christ. Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray. And that's where we find that remarkable passage about Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Africa, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. In the third section, we see a message to the chosen people concerning God's argument. God's argument against them. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So many times throughout the Old Testament, we see that God calls the, the natural world, the, the, the mountains, the stars, the, the, moon, the sun and moon, to be a witness against Israel. God is pictured as one bringing a lawsuit against his people. Israel had ignored God. He told them to remember how good he had been to them. All of the the blessings that that God had showered upon Israel. The people, conscience, conscience smitten, asked how they could please God. Frantically, they asked if, the, if burnt offerings would, be, would do it. So they, they, they sought to please God. They had wandered far from him. And they wondered how they could please him, how they could return him. Man is always trying to get back in the good graces of God with some outward religious service or some material goods. But the Bible tells us in Psalm 51 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God wants righteous conduct and a real personal experience of him in each life. Because of unrighteous conduct, the people had to suffer unbelievable consequences. We say that, that both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity and suffered greatly. God is a righteous judge. God wants righteous conduct and a real personal experience of him in each life. But the best way to get back in God's graces is to accept God's grace. The Old Testament gives us a definition of religion, of right religion, real religion, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Paul would call this the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If our religion is only a great creed, grand cathedrals, and elaborate rituals, then we have nothing. All must be lifted, filled with the mind of Christ. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Christ wants us to have more than a beautiful creed, even if it is spiritual and true. He wants the spirit of Christ to be lived out through our daily lives and to be exhibited in all our conduct in our homes and in our businesses. It is interesting that when Christ summed up the same matter of how we should live, he he used the words justice and mercy and faithfulness. So thus he equated faithfulness with walking humbly with our God. That's what faithfulness is. It's an apt comparison. You all know who Corrie Ten Boom is, right? The, the uh, Dutch lady who, as a child, her, her family hid Jews during World War II. And when the Nazis finally found out about them, they sent them off to a concentration camp. Um, she had something to say about this, this famous verse. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And this is what what Corey Ten Boom had to say about that verse. When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean. Gone forever. I believe God then places a sign out there that says, No fishing allowed. <laughs> it, What's that? That's for Bobby. Well, the, the human tendency is to, to want to go back and dredge up our sins and to say, well, I'm not good enough. I don't see how God could have ever forgiven me. But God tells us that he does forgive us, and he does take the, the sins that we have confessed and repented of, and he casts them into the depths of the sea, never to be reclaimed, never to be dredged up. I wanna conclude with what Micah tells us about that coming millennial kingdom. Those who take an amillennial position don't want, want to try to spiritualize all of the statements of the prophets about this coming millennial kingdom. I don't really think that you can do that and be, be intellectually honest. God, but Micah tells us about this coming millennial kingdom and gives us a, a vivid description of it. First, he tells us that the capital of Christ's kingdom will be Jerusalem. He tells us the extent of Christ's kingdom, that it will be universal, that it will, it will be over all the earth. He gives us the keynote of Christ's kingdom that it will be peace. It will be a time of peace that this uh, war-torn world has not seen since Cain killed Abel. He gives us the blessing of Christ's kingdom that it will be a time of unprecedented prosperity. Other prophets talk about how they the uh, the plowman will overtake the reaper. That the earth will just be bursting with prosperity and abundance. And he gives us the basis of Christ's kingdom. That it will be righteousness. will be the, the foundation of Christ's kingdom. And that is an overview of the book of Micah. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have removed our sins as far as east is from the west, that you have sent them to the bottom of the ocean in the depths of the sea. We are so thankful that you have given us extended grace and mercy to us. We're so thankful that we don't have to come up with some way to please you based on our own goodness, our own greatness, that neither the quantity or the quality of our things that we might offer to you will ever measure up But you and your kindness and your mercy have extended to us your love, and your compassion. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to appreciate it even more and to tell others about the glorious comfort that we have found in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.